Welcome to Insights into Success, where with your host Paul Dodds, we hope to educate, inspire and motivate you to achieve your own personal success. We talk to guests from all around the world from a variety of walks of life to hear the realities of their own journey to success. What challenges have they faced, how they cope with failure and what have been the keys or will be the keys to their own success. In our Read to Succeed interviews, we talk books that have inspired our guests, and for some, they share their secrets to marketing success. Join us as we give you insights into success. Welcome back to part two of our interview with Peter Diaga. Now, something else that you've written down here, trust your subconscious. Can you tell me a bit about that? I will push on a problem that I'm working on. Mm -hmm. to the point where I start going around in circles and mentally. And at that point, I say, okay, fine, I'm done with it for the day. And I'll go off to, I'll go for a walk, go to a movie, go to a pub, have a pint, uh, but basically just get away from it. Yeah. And when I come back, my subconscious has been working. Uh, it'll have the answer. The thing I was looking for will be there. Now, that happens more times than not. It's not guaranteed. But literally the thing, sleep on it. Sublimation is what it's called. Let your mind work on its own. Another one on the list was don't push. This is related yeah. to the same thing. Yeah. If you're working on a problem and you get to the point where you, you're just trying the same things, you're, you're stuck and you know what that feels like. When you feel yourself getting stuck, walk away from it. But, but, but you have to get it done. You know, walk away from it. But it's deadlines tomorrow. Yeah, walk away from it. You're not doing anything now. And if you continue doing what you've done for the next hour, that isn't going to work for you. And you know that because for the last two hours, it hasn't worked. So try something different. Walk away from it. Put your mind on something else. Go take a shower. Mm. And your brain, your subconscious is powerful. It'll work. Now, there's a lot of faith in that. And there's no guarantee. None of these things are guarantees. But I've solved more problems by just literally forgetting about them and walking away, doing something else than I've ever really solved by sitting on, you know, and with pen and paper and scratching my head and beating my head against the desk. Uh, yeah. Walking away is a better problem-solving technique than most people realize. Yeah. And uh, look, from my own personal experience, what I tend to do is if I've got a problem that I can't immediately resolve, then what I will do is say to myself, okay, I'm going to leave that to my subconscious and like you, then move on. And like you said, it's not guaranteed, but I could be randomly out somewhere two days later, next minute, bang, the answer comes into my head. So I believe, I believe in that personally, that you leave it to your subconscious and then give it time and not guaranteed, but often you'll get the answer. You've got to let your subconscious do it, do its bit. As a speaker, many speakers, I don't know how many, but a certain percentage of speakers will rehearse their presentation word for word. And what you're hearing on stage is a canned presentation. Now, to their credit, some of them, it doesn't look canned. It looks totally spontaneous. When I say trust my subconscious, I will just have a rough outline of what I'm going to say. I know the key points. I know how I'm going to get from one point to another, but I don't have a script. I get asked that quite often from organizers, you know, can, I, can we have your script in advance? That would be nice. If you have that, <laughs> send it to me. Uh, 
but I don't have a script. I have a bunch of key ideas. And then I get up there and I know I'm going to be able to pull this off because it's just like having a conversation with friends. Your brain will fill in the gaps. Your brain will do what it needs to do and have faith in it. It's never let me down, ever let yeah. me down on stage. Uh, I'm one of these speakers. I don't have the first couple of sentences in my head before I take the stage. I deliberately stay away from that. Really? I never know how I'm going to start. Wow. That's and I get up there. Well, I do that partly to instill a little bit of fear into what I do because fear kicks in with the adrenaline and the adrenaline helps you think better. Now, if everything's practice, I can get up there feeling too complacent. I don't want to feel complacent on stage. I want to be worried about failing. I wow. want to be worried about not being able to do it. And then once I start, that's it. I'm off to the races. I, I'm gone now and everything's fine. And I'll wake up at the end. So it's interesting. I, I interviewed a, an individual who helps coach people on doing public speaking. And the, one of the things he said is always focus on um, really getting a strong uh, introduction and the conclusion. He said, if you have a strong beginning and a strong ending, the rest of it will take care of itself. But from what you're saying, you don't you don't think in those terms at all. I don't think in those terms. I know that it works for some people. If you're a beginning speaker and you're terrified of getting up there, I get that. Having a strong opening, one that you've rehearsed and you know in your head, is going to give you the confidence. Hey, you know, I'll, I'll do that and then we'll see where it goes. And that works for some people. Yeah. I want the opposite. Now, I understand I've been doing it for 40 years. Yeah. After 40 years, you can develop a sense, oh, you know, I'm really good at this and I won't fail. And yeah, 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 just another talk. I don't want to be there. I don't want to feel as if I've done this so many times I can't fail. I think that's a road to doom. I think if I do that, I will fail. Yeah. I would rather get up there you know, concerned. My wife, you know, the night before a talk, I don't sleep. And for about a week before a brand new talk, I don't sleep. And my wife just rolls her eyes and says, yeah, yeah, here, <laughs> here we go. Here we go again. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a killer for punishment. You keep doing it. I keep doing it. Yeah. So I see here, too, on your notes, you talk about failure as experience and experience as treasure. So you... Tell us a little bit more about your, your view on that, particularly with the failure side of things. Every time you fail, you learn something. If you're doing it right, you learn what didn't work. You learn from other people's failures too, if you want. Most of what I learned about speaking well, I learned from speakers who didn't speak well. I'd watch oh. them fail on stage and I'd be interpreting it in my mind and calculating and analyzing and say, why do I hate what they're doing? Why doesn't that work for me? What are they doing that's annoying me? Uh, one of the things I used to hear speakers and still hear speakers say to this day, they'll put up a slide and it'll be so filled with information and they'll go, I know you can't read this, but... <laughs> And from day one, the question was always in my mind, if you know I can't read it, why are you putting it up there? Yeah. 
And one of the rules that I had right from the very, very beginning was never put up something that people can't read. That isn't easy to understand unless you want to display and communicate complexity. If I want to show how complicated a computer network is, one of the best ways is put up a computer network diagram and say, see that? That's what it's like out there. It's chaotic. It's chaos. But if you don't want to do that, if that isn't your specific point for that slide, never put up a slide that people don't understand. Every time you fail, you learn something. If you're paying attention, I had three huge failures as a speaker in the very, very beginning of my career. There were three times I walked out of the talk and I'd never connected with the audience. Absolutely never connected. And it showed in the evaluations. Now, the first time it happened to me, I was young and naive and I said, stupid audiences, the audience's fault. <laughs> that doesn't work. Second time, well, I must have been off my oats. Maybe I wasn't feeling well. Third time, okay, sit down and figure out what's going on. And sure enough, when I sat down, pen and paper, and did the analysis, large rooms, open space, chairs 30 or 40 feet away from the podium. Podium is elevated, sometimes as high as six feet. You're no a large gap between the two columns of um, seats down the, the aisle. Yeah. And in every time I'd been faced with that, I bombed. I, I crashed and burned. And I said, okay, what do I need to do to do that better? Three failures. I better start learning because I'd be presented with this again. And there are a number of things that you can do. One of the problems is I'm too far from the audience. Fine. Get down on the floor and walk amongst the audience with a wireless lavalier mic. Uh, Two, the room isn't to your liking? Change the room. Seriously, the chairs aren't in the right place? Get in early. Two hours early. Change the room. You're in control. You're the speaker. Bright lights in your eyes. You can't see the people in the audience? Tell them to turn off the bright lights. Put a different type of lighting on you. As a speaker, you're in control. Every failure there's a lesson there. If you're willing to you know, dig deep, figure out what it was, and start applying different strategies for solving that problem when you encounter it again in the future. Uh, every failure is an opportunity. It's not that problems are opportunity. Failure is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to learn. If you're willing to you know, take the lesson to heart, what did you do wrong? And it's always, what did you do wrong? You know, it has to be you because you can only change your behavior. You can't change the behavior of people out there. So what did you learn? What could you do differently? So if things do go well, do you find it a challenge to to get a lot out of it, to learn a lot? You know, if things go well, do you find do you find that that's more challenging to learn? Whereas if things fail, you've you're really confronted with it. You've got to learn something from it. When they fail, it's easy. I mean, it's easy to learn from failure. When you're doing it well, then you can get into a rut. You can say, oh, I've nailed it now. I'm going to do that again in the future. And what you forget sometimes is that what you did well was that you were off the cuff. You were doing improv. Uh, I do improv when I'm a speaker. I'll play off the audience. 
I'll point to someone and I can identify who they are, maybe by their dress, almost like a Sherlock Holmes thing. You're the accountant in the organization, aren't you? <laughs> How did you know it? Everybody's laughing in the audience. I nailed the accountant. Uh, it's because where they sit, this, that, the other. And that's spontaneous. You can't always replicate that. I'll give you an example. You ever gone out with a bunch of people, maybe that you haven't gone out with recently, and you had a wonderful night. You had a great yeah. night, cracking night. And you go, we got to do this again. So three months later, you get together again. It's not the same. No. Why? Because the first time has been spontaneous. It just happened. Sometimes life just throws you the right stuff and you make something out of it. But you can't always replicate that. And when you try, if I try to replicate a home run talk, I will fall flat on my face. Because yeah. what's missing is the spontaneity. And I know it doesn't look that way to the audience most of the time, but most speakers, in my opinion, the really good ones are making it up as they go along. They're playing off you, the audience. They're responding to your body movements. Yeah. Uh, they're responding to when you laugh. So every now and then you'll, you'll say something and you don't expect to get a laugh out of it. And all of a sudden, the audience is laughing. Take a mental note. What did you do? Maybe you'll try that again sometime if you can figure out what they found funny. Uh, sometimes you'll tell a joke, not a joke. Sometimes you'll use humor, and the humor falls flat. Uh, don't respond to it while you're on the stage. If they didn't get it, they didn't get it. If you bring your attention to it, now they know that you flubbed up. Uh, <laughs> the, audience, the audience trusts you and expects you to deliver a great job. They're also very gracious. They want you to succeed. Because if you don't succeed, they're going to have a lousy time. So the, the audience is that's your true. friend. They're yeah, absolutely your friend. They'll help you out as long as you don't make too many draws on their <laughs> charity. <laughs> and I guess after 40 years, you've had a heck of a lot of experience. So uh, for you these days... Um, yeah, it'll be a lot easier than what it was in the outset. Well, yeah, you've you've made so many mistakes. <laughs> you you know what to avoid. Yeah, look, 35, 40 years of speaking experience. I mean, you've seen it all. Uh, I was flown in to a big gig in Switzerland once, Geneva, I think. I was given an hour to talk. And as I'm walking up to the stage, the manager comes up to me. The person who hired me says, Peter, sorry. We have a politician coming in unexpectedly. We need you to cut your talk back to 10 minutes. Oh, wow. Okay, sure. And you go up there and you do it. And you do a 10-minute talk instead of a 60-minute talk. And how do you do that? Yeah. By cutting out your children, taking out <laughs> your heart. The thing you wanted to say, you won't be able to say it. And you don't speak fast. That just destroys you. You trim it down to something that's 10 minutes. And if you do it right, the audience will not know that you are scheduled to speak for 10 minutes. So have you done it for so long now that mentally you can kind of work it out in your head how long it's going to take? And like when someone delivers that message to you just at the, the, you know, the 11th hour, you can mentally go through it and do the editing and then just get up there comfortably and do it. When I'm putting a presentation together, 
it's done in components. In other words, stepping stones. First, yeah. I'll start here, which will get me to the next stepping stone, which will get me to the next stepping stone, boom, 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 boom. And I've, I'm so familiar with the stepping stones that if you say, okay, Peter, you're going to be cut down to 10 minutes, I say, okay, fine. I had 12 stepping stones. I will drop it down to three. Now, which three? Uh, likely the start. Uh, the next one is a toss-up because I need to get to where I want to go. So I, I, I define where I want to start now. Where do I want to finish? Because now I have to have a finish. Yeah. And I say, okay, what do I need to put in the middle that'll get me from the start to the end? And how can I make that connection smoothly? And then you just get up there and do it. Wow. Uh, getting cut back on your time is not that unusual if you're a speaker. Right. I've had other things. I gave a one-hour talk that it was interrupted three times. Ten minutes into the talk, I'm getting this cutting sign <laughs> from my thing. And I, I wrap up. I come to a screeching conclusion and I get back, I get off the stage and I say, a politician just came in, they got to get up and they spoke for half an hour and they say, okay, you can go up again, finish <laughs> up. And then I'm 10 minutes into that and they go, <laughs> and, they try and, and I get off and I come back down. And at this point it's becoming a joke and the audience doesn't know what's going on. And I get up the third time and my, my opening on the third one, because I had to release tension a little bit. I said, as you've noticed, uh, we've had some unexpected arrivals of politicians, and I've been pulled off the stage three times. So I've been on the stage three times today. Little does my client know that I get paid by the gig. So oh. <laughs> and that's where the improv comes in. And you just got to roll with it. I mean, if yeah. I start becoming a prima donna and saying, you know, you cut me down from 60 minutes to 10 and then you put me up again. Okay, for one thing, they'll never invite you back. For the other thing, you won't be able to deliver. So just have fun with it. Yeah, I mean, they know yeah. what they're doing to you, so you can't really mess up. They know they've made it incredibly difficult. So just roll with it. And again, let your subconscious take care of it. You can do it if you've got tons and tons of experience. Yeah. No, for sure. All right, just one other thing I wanted to touch on on your list. Um, you talk about working alone isn't optimal. T tell us a bit more about that and your th thinking in, in terms of that. Introverts like to work on their own. I have a certain set of skills. It isn't all-encompassing. There are certain, certain things I don't do well. Uh, detail, uh, accounting, forget accounting, I'll give it to someone else. Uh, editing. I'm not necessarily the best editor in the world, hand it to someone else. Uh, arranging flights and all, that's detail. Get someone to do it. I run a webinar series. I've been running it now 15 years. After about five years, we were giving an, I was giving a brand new talk every month. A talk takes me about 40 hours to put together from start wow. to finish. And it was getting a little bit onerous. I had other business coming in. Uh, 40 hours a month to put the webinar in was not a great idea. So I contacted a speaker that I'd bumped into several times. Uh, this time was in, where was I? We were in Wellington, uh, New Zealand. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, he's from Toronto. So we bumped into him there. I saw him speak at the end of the talk. I go up and say, 
how'd you like to be a part of a webinar series? You know, this is what I'm doing. Uh, I don't have enough time anymore to, to do it every month. I trust you. Uh, your style is different, but your thought processes are similar. Would you be willing to come along with me on board that next, you know, next month? I don't have to work alone. Working with someone allows you to do that brainstorming thing. And I don't mean sitting around with post-it notes and all the rest. I'm talking simply about bouncing ideas off someone else. What do you think about this? You know, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, what we're actually doing now, the notes that you saw, was his idea. Peter, you're wrapping up your webinar series. We have more than 100 hours of webinars going back the 15 years. Uh, I'd like you to do, he says, uh, your lessons learned. What did you learn? You've been at it for a long time. Did you learn anything? And that's what <laughs> that's what these are. All the little little points. You know, the one you didn't talk about. Step into the breach. If you see a problem and no one else is taking care of it, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity to step into the breach. Step into it, and you take up the flag. You may not be there at the end, but at least you've started. For those of you who don't know my background, uh, I was involved in Y2K. I saw the Y2K problem in 1978 working at IBM. And I went into my boss and I said, we have a problem in the year 2000. This won't work. And he says, you're worried about a problem that isn't going to happen for 22 years? <laughs> you're nuts. Uh, someone will take care of it by then. Ah, okay. And then 10 years later, uh, this is 1989 time frame. No one was taking care of it by then. And that's when I wrote, uh, a year or two later, 1993, that's when I wrote the year 2000 computer problem thing, the, the Doomsday 2000. Who was I? An absolute nobody. I was a computer operator when I saw the problem. I was a low-level manager when I decided to, this would be my problem. Step into the breach. No one else is doing it. You might as well write an article, give a talk, get up someone's nostril, be an annoyance, get people thinking about it. And that thing took me to 45 countries, the World Economic Forum in Davos, uh, testified before governments all over the world. All because I saw a problem. No one else is taking care of it. So I said, I will. So literally at that time, was no one talking about it? Not quite true. There were a couple of articles that had been written about it, but no one had really grabbed the attention of the media. Uh, a couple of people had talked about it. I was not the first by any stretch no. of the imagination. But in 1993, the Doomsday 2000 article in Computer World was the thing that lit the fire. Yeah. It caught the attention of the media. Uh, I wish earlier, the, the people who spoke about it earlier had gotten more credit. Uh, it was written up in the IBM Systems Journal. I mean, people knew about this thing, but weren't, no one was doing anything yeah. as, as in changing code. And government needed to be aware, media needed to be aware, so that everybody was doing it. There were a couple of individual people. Scottish Bank, for example, has started a Y2K problem, although it wasn't known as Y2K back then, back in 1978. And they were worried. They knew about the problem back then because their 30-year mortgages 
were running into problems when they went over into the year 2000, the closing dates. So I didn't discover it, but I was the one who started to beat the drum and yeah. become an annoyance. Step it's just timing, point. too. Timing, timing, too. Luck. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so just to wrap this up, for people out there that want to become the most successful version of themselves, what would be your key pieces of advice for them? Right, for one thing, and not now for the exposure. One of the big secrets about writing is pick a topic, write an article about it. What you're going to find out very, very quickly is that you might not necessarily know that topic well enough to write a structured argument to communicate it to someone else. The other thing you will find that once you start thinking deeply about your subject in order to write the article, you'll find out that you know more about it than you actually thought. So in one sense, you don't know enough. And writing will highlight that for you and point you in the right direction to find out more. The other thing, you know more about it than you thought. I've read articles that I wrote 10, 20 years ago, and I'm reading it without noticing who, who the author was. And I'm going, that person really knows a lot about that subject, not realizing it was my own work. <laughs> a lot of writers will tell you, writing is a way to learn something. Yeah. Just yeah. it helps you structure your thoughts. Like speaking, uh, writing is a linear process. When I'm speaking, I go one word after another for 60 minutes. When I'm writing, I go one word after another until the end of the chapter and on to the next one. How do you structure your thoughts so that that sequence, that linear sequence of words or you know, words on stage or words on the paper makes sense and encompass everything you want to say? Uh, it's a skill. It'll take you a while. First article I wrote the 2000 word one took me about two months. Now I can write a 2000 word article in about three hours wow. because I've learned there's a structure. I follow several structures, depending upon the length of the, the article and what it is I want to accomplish. But you acquire those skills just by repetition. If you want to become the best that you can be write and read, read, everything in your field, everything you can lay your hand on, uh, even outside your field, because you want to be exposed to new ideas, other ideas, other ways of doing things. If you're a computer programmer, what can you learn by reading about fashion? If you're an engineer, what could you learn from science fiction? Yeah, just consume everything in sight. My library, which you can't see, is close to 6,000 books. Wow. They're around me all the time. I have another 500, 600 books on my iPad. Uh, you know, it's gotten out of hand. My wife says, <laughs> no books. But the books are, books are where the ideas are, and they're sitting there waiting for you to tap into and try to make a connection between Aristotle, perhaps, or Persic, to what it is you're doing today. You can only do that if you're exposing yourself to new ideas, reading and writing. Well, that's kind of perfect for my next um, 
interview, hopefully, for Peter. And that is normally what I like to do, and I didn't mention this at the beginning or the outset of the interview, is I also like to do a separate segment called Read to Succeed because I want to encourage people to read because I think that's a great way to learn. So without trying to be presumptuous, I'm assuming you'll be willing to stay on for another five to ten minutes to talk about books to read? <laughs> Absolutely. Fantastic. Absolutely. All right, we'll, we'll wrap this one up for today. So thank you so much, Peter, for sharing with us on Insights into Success. And for everyone listening, stay tuned because we're about to record the next segment, which is going to be Read to Succeed. So thank you very much, Peter. It's been fantastic. And uh, we'll talk again in a minute. Look forward to it.